thank God and praise the Lord for his day that he's made. The Bible says that this is a day that he's made. And he told us that we should rejoice and be glad. And this is Pastor Adams. I am the president and founder of the Truth Matters Ministries. And we're so, so excited, so delighted that you've taken time to join our Truth Matters podcast today. And one thing that I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt as we continue in our teaching, in our expositional inerrancy of scripture, is that you have to be grounded in something. Jesus said that a man, if he built his house upon sand, he says that when the winds blow and when the waves begin to crash, he says that that house that's built upon sand, that it would crumble and it would not uh, be able to stand. But he says that we have to build our house upon a rock. That when the winds blow and the waves crash against a rock, it says that it will be able to stand and have stability and endurance. And today we're so thankful that his word, it gives us endurance. Somebody said that everything is going down, but the word of God. There's a song we used to sing at church. It says, be sure, be very sure that your anchor grips and that it holds on to a solid rock. And he says that rock is Jesus. He is the only one. And we know that the Bible says in John 1 and 1 that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. So we know that Jesus is the Word and the Word is Jesus. But then it says also in Corinthians, it says that there was a rock that followed Moses in the wilderness And he said that rock was Christ. And as we get into our teaching and our exposition today on inerrancy of scripture, I believe it's so important that we know the importance of being built and established upon a firm foundation, which is the word of God. And before we get into our teaching today, we want to just pray. Now, Father, once again, we come before your presence with exceeding joy. We thank you, Lord God, that you are, Lord, the head of our lives. We thank you that you are he that goes before us. I love you when you told us in your word that you were the great shepherd. You said that, Lord God, that you would lead us besides the still waters. You said that you would prepare a table before us in the presence of our enemies. You told us, Lord God, that you would always let goodness and mercy follow us all the days of our life. And we're so thankful, God, that your eye is upon us. And you said that you hear our prayer. You hear our cry. You said that, Lord God, you are a high tower and that the righteous can run into you. And when they run into you, you said that they would find safety. You are our buckler. You are our shield. We thank you, Lord God, that you are, Lord, our defense. We thank you that you are sword. You, Lord God, are our defense in everything. We thank you that you are the Lord God that goes before us and you fight for us. We thank you that we don't have to fight this battle alone, but you are the Jehovah Jireh. You are the Jehovah Shalom. You are he that will go before us and you will make sure that we find victory. Yes, we can cry out and declare that we are not just conquerors, but we're more than conquerors. My mind goes back to how you're 
your apostle Paul as he was in prison and they brought the very image of Caesar before him because he wouldn't bow down to Caesar. But Lord, we thank you today that Paul, he says, don't put that conqueror in front of me as if I'm going to bow before the conqueror. I'm more than a conqueror through Christ Jesus. And we thank you today that we're heirs, we're joint heirs. We thank you, Lord God, that we can stand, Lord, upon, Lord, our relationship with you. We thank you, Lord, that you never leave us alone. We thank you that you abide by us. We thank you that you stand near. Great today is thy faithfulness. You bless everyone that tuned in, that took time to listen to this podcast. You bless them in a great way. Let their answers be. Let, let their questions be answered today. Let them find resolution to confusion. Let them find, Lord, peace and let them find wisdom and understanding through these podcasts. I pray, Lord God, that you would mend every broken heart, that, Lord God, that you would bring back together relationships. I pray even right now, God, that you would bring healing to bodies. Lord, those that are afraid, those who need a miracle, you are still a miracle worker. You can do anything, God, but fail. Some things are impossible to man, but you said all things, all things are possible with God. And we thank you, Lord God, as we walk by faith and as we stand in your word, that there's nothing that you can't do. Lord, we just seek your will. We seek your purpose. And Lord God, we pray that our destinies will be realized because you're faithful. You bless everyone that tuned in today to join this podcast. And we thank you, Lord God, in advance for a mighty harvest. And in Christ Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. And we've been going over roughly the last four podcasts uh, in this topic of inerrancy of scripture. We've talked about the test uh, that will uh, actually validate a document. And there are three tests that will validate a document's authenticity. And the first one was called the bibliographical test that really defines and it gives us um, confidence in how the documents actually came and were arrived and how they were copied. And then we went through the internal evidence test things. And we're still in that particular one that speaks about what is the Bible's actually say about itself? Is there something internal in the scriptures themselves that validated? And how can they be validated? They can be validated through things such as uh, archaeology, through history. They can be validated through the internal testimony that comes through prophetic utterances. There are so many ways that the internal testimony can actually confirm the document itself. And we're going through some archeological um, confirmations and affirmations that validate the word of God. And we talked about a few of them. We're gonna just continue on in that and then we're gonna be summing up uh, this internal evidence test. In 1993, there was an an archeologist named uh, Seymour uh, Gitton. And he was of the F, uh, the, the W.F. Albright Institute of Archaeology Research and Trade uh, of Dothan, of Troop Dothan, of the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. And what happened was in their 13th and final season of excavations at what they call was the Tel Manik of Israel, they had long suspected that the Tel Mekne was the site of one of the main cities of the Philistine Pentapolis, specifically the biblical Ekron. And they figured that they were close to finding the biblical Ekron. Joshua 13 and 3 spoke about Ekron, but there was no archaeological proof that Ekron really existed. 
Joshua 13 and 3, plus 23 other Old Testament references talked about Ekron, E-K-R-O-N. Then a royal uh, dedicatory inscription was carved into a slab of limestone, dramatically confirmed the place, name along with the names of five of its rulers. Of two of them are specifically mentioned in the Bible. So the Ekron inscription actually confirmed what the Bible had written in over 24 different references, and they actually found Ekron. And also it spoke about the the Philistine tradition uh, that was a part of the Ekron region, and that's found in Amos 9 and 7. If you read Amos 9 and 7, Joshua 13 and 3, you will see that the Bible spoke of Ekron, and archaeology has uncovered this historical Ekron to prove once again that the Bible is reliable and it is inerrant. And then there's what is called Mount Ebal Altar. And there was an altar that was mentioned in scripture and people could not find it. There was an archaeologist named Adam Zertal who came across the ruins during the archaeological survey of the tribal region of Manasseh in 1980. And it still adheres to the inter- into the interpretation. He went on to excavate the site located at Mount Ebel, the mountain from which Joshua pronounced the curses. So when you read where Joshua pronounced the curses, you know he, that they were actually lying opposite of Mount Gerizim, the mountain of blessings, and separated by the valley which, uh, which of the ruins of the ancient Shechem lied near the modern Nablus. He determined to excavate the site because the survey he had found a great quantity of potteries and sherds and lying around in a large pile of stones. The sherds dated uh, dated to Iron Age of uh, 1220 to 1000 BC, the period which Israelites apparently settled in Canaan, as well as the period of the judges. Further, though, many of the Iron Age sites were discovered in the survey was in the area of Mount Ebal. So Mount Ebel, which was excavated, confirmed what the Bible and what Joshua had spoke about the cursings and the blessings. And they actually found this particular site at Mount Ebel. And here's another instance where the Bible declared something in Scripture. And when you dig in the ground, it actually confirms that the things that God said in Scripture were true. And then the same thing can be said about the, uh, the Ugarit Uh, excavation, it was actually found to be another confirmation of what God has spoken as related to the destruction of the temple. Uh, An excavator named Claude Schaefer, he actually found the the Ugarit uh, excavation and he found that city. Now, we're going to move away from those 10 archaeological uh, uh, findings and we're going to talk about another archaeological proof. about the word of God. And this is really overwhelming when you think about it. The proof of scripture has been confirmed in what is called the Ebla Kingdom Tablets. The Ebla, E-B-L-A Kingdom Tablets. One thing that I I really love about this is that in 1964, they found 17,000 tablets and they have been uncovered since 1964. Those tablets confirm the places and the events revealed in Genesis. The walls of Jericho were shown to have fallen in Jericho's excavation, just as God said. 
the proof of the uh, proof of the pool of Bethesda has been discovered. Many skeptics denied King Solomon's reported wealth, but archaeologist Henry Bouchard, between 1924 and 1934, he unearthed the remains of one of Solomon's chariot cities in Megiddo in the northern Palestine breasted found stables capable of holding more than 400 horses and the remains of barracks for Solomon's chariot battalions which were stationed to guard a strategic trail through Megiddo. And if you turn your Bibles to 1 Kings 9, the 15th through the 19th verse, you will see that God has spoken his holy word about all of Solomon's wealth and all of his chariots and his horses. And they actually found the remains of all of that because the Bible is true and truth does matter. Nelson Gluick, another archeologist, found the remains of a huge refining factory for copper and iron, two metals that Solomon used when bartering for gold, silver and ivory. If you read 1 Kings 9, 28 and uh, verses 10 through 22, it speaks about that goal. Critics of scripture often pointed to there being no evidence of the Hittite peoples. The Bible referred to them over 40 times. Archaeologist Hugh Winkler excavated the Hittite capital of Bakhas Khoi and recovered thousands of Hittite texts as well as a famous Hittite code. So they found the famous Hittite code, thousands of Hittite texts, and they uncovered the capital of the Hittite city. We must mention that in 1896 discovery of the slab referred to as the Israel, the Israel Stele. The discovery counters skeptics who suggested the Egyptian exodus is mythology. People say, ah, there, there was no exodus out of, out of Egypt. They said it's just a, a story. The Red Sea is just a story. It didn't really happen. Uh, the seven-foot black granite slab is inscribed with the words, Israel is desolate. Its seed is not. This affirmed that in accord with scripture, Israel was a significant people group. Paul Meyer, an eminent ancient historian, writes, this is the earliest reference to Israel in non-biblical sources and demonstrates that as in 1230 BC, the Hebrews were already living in the promised land. That didn't come just from the Bible, but they found that from the slab. The Assyrians, like the Hittites, were pointed to by skeptics as being a mythical people, as such Sargon, uh, Asterpal, Shinreb were all considered to be kings of mythological kingdom. That was until the 19th century when Laird, the great Assyrianologist, an Indiana Jones type of person, if there ever was one, uncovered the ruins of Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire on the plains of northern Iraq. Iraq. The biblical account of the worldwide flood is mocked by agnostics. People say, ah, there ain't really no flood. This whole world wasn't up underwater. And many atheists and skeptics, they always say that it must be stated that it was spoken of and 
on the conscience of the ancient world. The Greeks, the Babylonians, the Sumerians all chronicle a principal deluge. The Greek epic of Gilgamesh contains a corrupted version of the flood story with a cube-shaped arc. The book of 2 Chronicles 32 and 30, it says something very, very revealing. If you really look at it, I think that it's, it's really worth mentioning. It says, King Hezekiah 721 to 686 BC, bracing from the siege of the Syrian Sennacherib, cut this tunnel through a solid rock in order to ch- to channel water from the Gihon Spring to the Pool of Salium inside the walls of Jerusalem. Archaeological inscription in the Museum of Istanbul bears eloquent testimony to the remarkable historical reality. So there are so many things in archaeology, in history, that the Bible spoke of itself that has been confirmed Confirmed by archaeology and history. So the internal evidence test of what the Bible says about itself has been confirmed because we know that the Bible is inerrant. And we're going to go ahead for the time that we have left in this podcast and we're going to go to our third aspect of validating a, a, a document to see if it's inspired. The first was the bibliographical test, then the internal evidence test. And the third one is called the the external evidence test. And we're going to continue on with the uh, internal evidence test in the area of prophecy. Now, the internal evidence test is buttressed or is disassembled by the claims it makes in the sphere of prophecy. The Bible makes predictions about the future that must be analyzed. I recall when I was in the military, I became very proficient in firing various types of weapons. I would fire pistols at 50 meter targets and fire a 50 caliber machine gun at a 100 meter target and anyone who's been in the military knows that uh, the further away the target is and some weapons can't shoot far and then I would take my M16A1 rifle and I would hit 300 meter targets and I would like just to present a scenario to those who are listening to our podcast today or a proposition of a person if he was using a bow and arrow and he was trying to hit a bullseye target from 50 meters away. Can a person in the strength of their arm and the strength of the bow, could they hit the target in their own human strength, human strength 50 meters away? Yeah, of course he could. What if the target was moved back 500 meters? Could a person take that same bow and could they hit that target 500 meters away? Mm, probably but not likely. What if we move the target back five miles? Could a human being hit it? I don't believe a human being nor the string on the bow has the strength to propel an arrow far enough to be able to even hit. A man probably can't even see the target five miles away. What if the target was 50 miles away? Could he do it then? He probably couldn't even hit it with a cannon if it was 50 miles away. Now, this is the same difficulty confronting a man who tried to see or know detailed information far in the future in his own ability. The target is too hard to hit intellectually or by chance. It's somewhat possible for a man to predict something like, "Mm, in the next year, there will be more than 40 terrorist bombings in Palestine and Iraq. Well, you, you might can get lucky and say something like that. But it's impossible for a man to know in his own ability 
Something like in 483 years, there will be a man who will travel in a flying craft to the middle of Washington, D.C. He will be held and praised. Even the president of the United States will bow down and worship him. He will cause peace to prevail in the whole world for 136 years. If someone made that type of a proclamation, they could not know something that far away and in that much detail in their own ability. If a man predicted the same event to happen in two years, well, the possibility of collusion might exist. But to predict it 483 years in advance and have it occur exactly as predicted is beyond human ability. And since that's so, how did the prophets of the Bible predict events 700 years in advance? We in this Truth Matters podcast contend that they were correct when they said, Thus saith the Lord. That's the only way they could know because they didn't know, but God spoke through them and he prophesied through them. I'm going to give you a few examples of of why this is so important. A few examples of, of this exquisite and compelling truth is as follows. The internal testimony of the document entitled the book of Daniel within its pages are very precise sequences of the future order of the Gentile kingdoms that would dominate the world 600 years before Christ. God said that Babylon, Medes, Persians, Greeks, and Romans would be the dominant powers. And you know what? That's exactly what happened in that particular order of Gentile nations. The book of Ezekiel speaks of a man named Ezekiel. This man named Ezekiel stated in the document that God gave him personal information about a future event. If you turn to the 26th chapter, he wrote, the word of the Lord came unto me. In 576 BC, God told him to speak to the world about the judgment that will come upon the great city of Tyre. I want you all to put your seatbelts on and pay attention. This is so important because truth does matter. He said this, one, Nebuchadnezzar will destroy the mainland city. What was the second part of the prophecy? Many nations would come against Tyre. Then the third thing he said was they were going to make Tyre bare like a rock, flat like the top of a rock. The fourth, fishermen will spread their nets over the site. What's the fifth part of the prophecy? Throw city... They're going to throw the city's debris into the water. The sixth part of the prophecy is entire will never be rebuilt. And the seventh part, and it will never be found again as a city. So how did this happen? Around 573 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar laid siege upon the mainland Tyre three years after the prophecy. He destroyed the main city gates and found the city nearly empty. Tyranians moved to the island city of Tyre, and there there remained a powerful city for hundreds of years. Now, this is not in the Bible, but this is what history tells us. History tells us that around the year 333 BC, 240 years after Ezekiel spoke, history records the incident when Alexander the Great, while at war with the Persians after defeating Darius III, marched towards Egypt. When he reached the mainland city of Tyre, he desired to have them open the gates to him, denying their use to the Persian fleet. 
the citizens refused to do so. Alexander was demolished the city and he used the debris to build a mole bridge 200 feet wide across the strait, which is about a mile out, separating the new city of Tyre from the old Tyre. And he also erected towers with the debris from the city that he tore apart and war engines at the end to make sure that he got out to that island city. Muslims conquered the city in 690 AD. The bridge still remains today. There's a, a, a historian named Nina J- uh, Jidajan. She recently visited the area formerly known as the Great City of Tyre and describes what she saw. She says the port is still in use. Small vessels still lay an anchor there. The port has become a haven for fishing boats and a place for spreading nets. Let's review what the document claimed and what actually occurred. All seven aspects of the prophecy were fulfilled in every aspect. The enormity of this would be parallel to if Charles Spurgeon, who lived in the 18th century, if he stated in writing in the year 1850 that God said London will be sieged by many nations and its walls and gates will be thrown in the ocean. The entire city will be destroyed and become a place where shepherds graze their sheep. London would never be rebuilt and still remain desolate as a sign that God spoke it. What if it occurred in the year 2095? What collusion would be, what what conclusion would the rational, unbiased inquirer embrace? Was the written document true? Of course it would be true. Could Spurgeon have known those things in his own human ability? No way. The probability of it occurring at random chance is against enormous odds. The prophecy of Tyre being fulfilled by random chance or Ezekiel just getting lucky is 1 in 7.5 to 100 in the cell, 107 power. That's 1 with 107 zeros behind it. I don't know if it's a, a cotillion, a quadrillion, a gazillion, and a patillion, but it's a whole lot of odds of a person being able to do that in their own knowledge. Peter Stoner, in his book Science Speaks, took only 11 prophecies of the Old Testament and presented a mathematical probability of them be fulfilled by chance or in human wisdom. He surmised that out of those 11 prophecies, them coming to chance, coming to pass by chance would be one in 5.79 times 1,059 zeros. Just chew on that for a minute. Stoner equates it this way. He says, just to show you how the impossibility of man being able to prophesy those things and they come to pass in his own ability or getting lucky. He says, imagine if you... Uh, took some silver dollars and you took the silver dollars just imagine this in your mind and you stacked the silver dollars each stack would be four feet high but you got enough stacks four feet high to cover every inch of the state of Texas imagine how many silver dollars that is but then you only took one silver dollar and you put a red X on it And out of all of the stacks, four feet high, covering all of those millions of square miles in Texas, 
only one had a red X. And you put a blindfold on a man and you said you only get one attempt. I want you to reach down. You might be by Dallas. You might be by San Antonio. You might be by Waco. You might be all the way down by El Paso. But you got one chance with a blindfold to pick the coin with the red X. The chances of him accomplishing it is impossible. And then he goes on to equate it to a, a billion men. And we got seven billion people in the, in the world. But if you just took a billion men and you gave each man a bucket. So you got a billion men with a bucket apiece. And each bucket has a thousand dice in them. So these billion men with buckets with a thousand dice, every minute... They would dump the thousand dice out at the same time. Now, what's the chances of all of them having every dice hit six at the same time? How long would it take those billion men with the thousand dice in each bucket, dumping them out every minute and every dice and every bucket hitting six at the same time? How long would it take? Dr. Stoner says it would never happen. The odds are too great. The scripture's internal testimony states in 2 Peter 1 and 21, it says, For no prophecy ever originated because some man willed it. It never came by human impulse. But men spoke from God who were moved and compelled by the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And the internal evidence tests of prophecy, archaeology, in all of the testimonies of what the scripture says by themselves that have been proven and affirmed by history, along with the bibliographical test, gives us such a firm foundation of the reliability of God's holy word. And the last portion that we're going to speak out before we end our podcast today is what's called the external evidence test. What did men say or what external testimonies outside of scripture attest or give testimony to the reliability of scripture and do other historical materials confirm or deny the internal testimony provided by the documents themselves we're going to look at some testimonies there was a man named Irenaeus he was the bishop of Lyons in AD 180 who was a student of Polycarp who was a Christian for 86 years and was a disciple of John the apostle wrote so firm is the ground upon which these gospels rest that the very heretics themselves bear witness to them. And as a result of them, they endeavor to establish their own doctrine from the scriptures. Other historical figures attest to the, true, the truth claimed by the internal testimony. Lucian of uh, Samosota said this. He was a, a satirist of the second century he spoke scornfully of Christ and of Christians. He alluded to Christ as the man who was crucified in Palestine because he introduced the new cult into the world. The lawgiver persuaded them that were brothers one of another after they transgressed once for all by denying the Greek gods. And by worshiping that crucified Sophus himself and living under his laws, so Lucian of Samosota, even though he had disdain for Christ, he did confirm externally outside of scriptures through his writing that there were Christians and there were those who worshiped Christ and that he was a man who was from the region of Palestine and Galilee. And then there is another 
uh, external testimony. It came from Pliny the Younger. We know back in, in the first century, my name is Manuel Jr., and then there's Manuel Sr. Back then, they would say Manuel the Younger, and then Manny the, the, uh, the Older. So Pliny, who was the Younger, he said in AD 112, he said that the governor of the Bithynia was killing both men and women, boys and girls. There were so many put to death, he wondered if he should continue killing anyone claiming to be a Christian or if he should kill just certain ones. He said he made Christians bow down before the statue Trajan, which is one of their false gods. He said he made Christians curse Christ, which a genuine Christian won't do. But Pliny the Younger, he did give testimony that there were those who actually served Christ and they were committed to Christ and they claimed to be Christians. And he gave testimony about the persecution that took place with Christians outside of the Bible. And then we have the testimony of Thallus, who said in AD 52, the Samaritan historian wrote in the third book of history, writes about the sun going dark about the same time that the Nazarene was crucified. He said that it was a full moon eclipse that occurred during the time of the Paschal when Christ died. So Thallus actually wrote outside of scripture everything that the Bible says at the crucifixion where it says that the sun went down in the middle of the day. And Jewish historian Justin Martyr wrote in AD 150, addressing Emperor Antonius Pius, referred to Pilate report, which was to be preserved in the imperial archives. Pilate explains how he pierced Jesus' feet and cast lots for his garment. And we had spoke uh, in the archaeological portion of this particular podcast that they actually found the, the, the inscription of Pilate. And here Justin Martyr even speaks about Pilate even giving testimony about the fact that they pierced Jesus' feet. And then the other external testimony comes from Mara Barserpian, who wrote in AD 73. He wrote a letter to his son while, his, while he was in prison. This is interesting what he said. He says, what advantage did the Jews gain from executing their wise king? It was just after that that their kingdom was abolished. Nor did the wise king die for good. He lived on in the teaching he had given. So Merabar Serpian, even though he was confused and he did not understand or believe in who Jesus Christ was, but he did confirm that the Jews did have a king and that afterwards, there was great persecution. It appeared that the physical kingdom or the following of Jesus Christ was abolished through the persecutions that came through Tiberius and Nero and so many other uh, catacomb experiences that took place. But as we wrap up today, the Encyclopedia Britannica uses over 20,000 words in describing the person of Jesus. His description took, took, took more space than was given to Aristotle Cicero, Alexander, Julius Caesar, Buddha, Confucius, Muhammad, or Napoleon Bonaparte. Even with these facts, it's so sad to see such an erosion of love for the Bible. 
Recently, a study was conducted and discovered that since 1998, only 47 million Bibles were, were sold compared to 103 millions of the occultic series, Harry Potter. Our world is in trouble. Men are looking for reality and fantasy and virtual constituents. Look at the picture. Israel is a real place. So is Galilee, Bethlehem, Nazareth, Jerusalem, and Mount Olivet. The people were verified in history. Pilate, Herod, Annas, Caiaphas, Peter, Paul, John, and Pilate, Julius Caesar, they were all confirmed as living historical persons. No one questions their reality, but they scratch out the person, Jesus, who gives them all relevance and prominence. They don't question the historical person of Mary, but they don't believe in her son. Peter and John are not doubted, but they were disciples of Jesus. The real issue is if Jesus is real, then what he said is true. And if it's true, then sinful men are accountable to him and what he requires of them. This is the core of the contention and rebellion against the Bible. So as an investigator, we present only a portion of the mountain of evidence that demonstrates the inerrancy of scripture. Now I ask those to wear the hat of a judge to deliberate and examine all the evidence. It would require a very biased and relentless pride to judge the evidence is less than compelling. There was a garden full of beautiful flowers. A butterfly flew by and quickly landed on one flower and quickly moved to the next one. He was bouncing from each flower like a pogo stick. Then there came a botanist who gazed at the flowers through a magnifying glass. He stared for hours and then wrote meticulous notes about every aspect of the flowers. Then later, there came a bee. This bee dove deep down into the heart of the flower, and he drank and carried away the nourishing nectar from the plant of that flower. Now, this incident illustrates the type of people who come into God's word. There is the person who is like a butterfly. They come to church looking swell on the outside. They hop from one church to the next church, from stirring sermon to the next sermon, fluttering here and fluttering there, getting emotional, nice feelings. They dance real hard. They run around the church shouting, but are spiritually famished. There are those just as the botanists who take copious notes and they look at everything closely from each vowel. They study outlines and history and languages, but they don't draw much out of the word. It's all an exercise in cerebral intellectual academics. Then there are those who like the spiritual bee. They sink down deep into every flower of God's word, every book every page of scripture they come upon and they draw out of the wisdom the truth and the life that is a blessing not only to them but those around them the real issue at hand is if the bible is god's word what are you going to decide concerning the central person of scripture who was jesus christ since the word is true he came to the world to sacrifice his life for our sins and that through his shed blood, our sins can be cleansed. What are you going to do? Will you resist the truth revealed in scripture? 
Or will you humble yourself and join the millions who bow their hearts and ask the resurrected Christ to forgive them for their rebellion, their fleshly transgressions, their evil secret deeds, and receive his peace and gift of eternal life? The facts are staring you in the face. You have eyes. What are you going to do? Continue fighting yourself, living in rebellion? Or are you willing to experience the greatest love relationship any person can experience? The joy of salvation and eternal life through Christ. Ask him to forgive your sin. Receive him as your Lord of your life. If you're not born again and you're not sure where you will spend eternity, I want you to bow your heads with me. Now, Father, I thank you for every person who has participated in this podcast. Those that don't know you, those who are in that critical interval, they're in that valley of decision. You said in your word, I set before you life and death. Let them choose life. Let them trust your word. You promised that if they would seek, they would find. You said if they ask, they'll receive. You said if they knock, you would open the door. You told each and every one of them that you stand at the door and you knock. And if any men will open up, you will come unto them and receive them into yourself. You said, come unto me, all ye that labored are heavy laden. And you says, and they would find rest for their soul. You said that you were meek and lowly of heart. And you said that you would always, if any man come into you, that you would in no wise cast them out. I thank you, Lord God, that you are the lover of souls. I thank you that there's room around the cross. Some have come through the water and some have come through the flood. But every man, woman, boy and girl, we all must come through the blood. I thank you for attending this Truth Matters podcast. And we thank God for you and continue to pray for us. In Jesus' name, amen.